brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Well, praise be, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And it can be hard to navigate through the social taboos and public opinions of this world, as everyone has something to say about everything. So if you think too much about it, you end up with a numb, stagnant existence that is closer to a personal hell than one might realize. And it's easy to get swallowed up in a sea of mediocre advice from teachers, parents, politicians, and bosses, all willing to send you through a college system of crippling debt, encourage you to settle down in the suburbs, march you off to war, or dangle the promotional carrot over your head for as long as you're willing to let them. The loudest voices in this life are rarely the soundest, and the system's attempts to corral the infinite you into middle management, green paper obsession, and a hamster wheel of obligations are best seen as opportunities to go another way and take the reins of life yourself if you think you can do better. I know the big machine has many gears to grind you down, but behind all that is the mystical life of the determined individual, whispering, come on in, the water's fine. These are the lessons of magic. You have more power than you know, active engagement with the universe yields personal growth, and life is what you make it. Funny that an authoritarian system built on hierarchy and control would want you to steer away from that. But fear not, good people, because with us today is one of the great illuminated advocates for the magical worldview, Lon Milo Duquette. He was here once before in the early days of the Higher Side Chats, way back in 2014, when controlling my own life felt as likely as winning the McDonald's Monopoly Millions. But it is a real pleasure to have him back today. Lon is now the author of over a dozen books translated into a dozen languages who has cultivated an expertise in tarot, Kabbalah, ceremonial magic, and more, writing about many various systems and characters within the magical sphere. He's also the deputy grandmaster of the Ordo Templi Orientis and an accomplished musician to boot. He joins us just after the release of his latest work, Allow Me to Introduce, An Insider's Guide to the Occult, which offers a collection of the vast introductions he's written for many other magical books. So let's get into it. The great Bob Alon himself, the music-making magician, and one of my favorite shards of the infinite godhead, Lon Milo Duquette, welcome back to the higher side. That's a wonderful introduction, Greg. Thank you very much. 
Uh, thank you. It is an honor and a pleasure to have you here. I have learned a lot from your writing, and it feels as if wrapping one's head around the true nature of reality and our part in it is a never-ending rabbit hole. So it is great to do this again. And you know more so than I that the OTO affiliation and just magic and the occult in general can sound like a scary thing to some people, but it seems like the irony is that Listeners of a show like this can identify a lot of life's control mechanisms and the system's authorities and want to be more independent, but then get caught drinking their Kool-Aid when it comes to magic. At its best, it's a silly superstition. At worst, it's dark and evil. But it's their prescription for life that tends to make us sick, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, it can be, especially when an organization forms that presumes to pretend that they have the answer and discourage you to think for yourself. So, yeah, I've just been lucky in my magical career to whatever organizations that I've affiliated with and have been initiated into have been just the type of organizations that tell you that your enlightenment's up to you. That you're an order of one, even though the club may have organizational rules, nobody's telling anybody else how to think. And I've been really lucky to be associated with those kinds of groups. And that's mostly what the founder of the OTO, or at least its main historic leader, Alistair Crowley, had a philosophy of extreme individualism rather than authoritarian hierarchical thing in nature. It's kind of spooky, especially when people try to affiliate themselves with an organization because they want an organization to tell them how to think. And when they join a Thelemic Fellowship, they're immediately disabused of that and They're forced with the possibility and the necessity to think for oneself. And they're looking for someone or something or some organization to tell them how to think. They're going to be really disappointed if they hook up to a polemic organization, or most of them. (laughs) Fair enough. Yes, magic is definitely a personal journey, no doubt. And, of course, you're well known for that subtitle to your book, Low Magic. It's all in your head. You just have no idea how big your head is. And I used to think that was kind of like a cop-out. Like, it sounds good, but it's so vague that I don't know what I could do with that. But if that saying is true at the core, why is reality set up to conceal that? To conceal that it's all one thing? Well, it's not so much that... Reality is set up that way. It's that you're placed in a level of, I guess, sleep or slumber. You're set in a level of dream whereby you're getting in your own way. And it's each of us have our own set of pains in the asses (laughs) that are standing between us and waking up. It may seem like the universe is conspiring against us. But ultimately, the universe is us, and at any given point in our 
adventure, in our struggle, we're confronted with just the pain in the ass we need to wake up from. So, <laughs> Fair, fair. Well, I do know people who might say, yeah, I've tried to live my life as if the pains in my ass are you know, within my sphere of, of control, that it is all me. I've tried to live that way. And uh, those obstacles don't really seem to budge all that much. What would you say to, to people who maybe feel like they accept this intellectually, but just aren't seeing the real world application work out for them? Well, I don't know. It's not, I've never gotten any obstacle to budge. I've had to budge myself <laughs> to a place where that's not the issue. And, you know, a lot of people have expectations of what illumination is. And most of those expectations are based on their current view of reality. When illumination is actually breaking into a new reality. I used to think when I was thinking I was going to be a great Eastern mystic, you know, and I meditated and did all of the mantras and chants and pranayamas and everything else. And I had this vision of me, this image of me gaining enlightenment, sitting under a Bodhi-type tree with a shaved head and a ochre robe or something. And I couldn't get over the fact of how cool I would look losing my ego. And... Obviously, you can see there's a paradox there that I was hung up thinking about how cool and spiritual I would look losing my ego. And the point is, your idea of what illumination is going to be like is based on your unilluminated expectation. Mm. And that's not how it's going to happen. <laughs> Fair enough. Well... If it is all in my head, it's comforting to know I'm just talking to a more polished version of myself right now. Yeah. But <laughs> me, you're just going to wake up one day and realize that we've been each other all along. <laughs> I like it. I like it. But I guess I think that phrase kind of bothered me for a long time because it's similar to what people say to dismiss stuff like psychedelic experience or out-of-body experience or many other things. We'll hear them say, there's no value in those experiences because you're just altering your brain chemistry quite literally that it's in your head. But, you know, you're talking in more of a, a consciousness context. But hearing that you're only feeling like you're experiencing something profound is, uh, you know, I guess a trick of our our system. But it's it has a similar feel to the idea that it's all in your head. It's it's like, almost, I don't know, it almost feels nihilistic. Well, you can look at it that way, and looking at it that way, it certainly is. But quantum physicists are telling us the nature of existence itself is consciousness, and that light, matter, energy is an aspect of consciousness. And of course, you and me, in the us-ness that is having this conversation, are pretty much stuck in a very narrow range of consciousness whereby we think there's a past and a present and a future. Just like me being late calling into you uh, <laughs> today. You know, ultimately, if we back our consciousness camera up, 
there wasn't a time or place really for us to be late from. <laughs> That's a good point. And, you know, your secret was going to be safe with me. Oh, but <laughs> oh no, I'm a screw up. <laughs> Aren't we all, I guess. But the idea, and of course, you know, when you play with the idea of like Schrodinger's cat, and it's all an aspect of consciousness. And the uh, spiritual systems of the past and of the present may seem like something that you actually do a practice that creates causes that have the effect of illumination. But it's not like that at all. You're instantly working with your consciousness, and your consciousness is changing the world around you because the world around you, you're part of this big consciousness singularity, whether you know it or not. And changes in your own consciousness is literally mutating you and mutating the world around you. And that is such a big thing to bite off that most people can't even get to the point of where they can wrap their meat brains around what that really means. And so the person that would criticize, say, a profound psychedelic experience and saying, well, it's only tweaked your, physiologically tweaked your brain cells for a, a little while, and it's given you this feeling of an experience. They can be perfectly right about that. But the point is that the effect of having a profound mystical experience like that has already mutated you, it has already altered yourself as a receiver. Like most of us in our sleepy condition are like a really primitive crystal radio set that can only pick up certain broadcast frequencies. And in order to pick up a broader range of frequencies or radio frequencies, you have to have a better unit. You have to have a better crystal set, you know. And the purpose, if there will, or the effect of meditative techniques and magical psychodramas and things like that is to fine-tune and improve your equipment so that your new reality is not that simple little slender band of AM frequency that the crystal set can bring in, but literally wake you up in a routine way to a huge, more broader band of frequencies. Ultimate illumination is opening you up to the frequency of the singularity of existence itself. And that's something that no troll on Twitter is going to be able to talk you out of. <laughs> I like it. And I guess the only reason I brought up the brain chemistry psychedelic parallel is that in everyday consciousness, to the unenlightened, I guess, things do feel separate. And we can say that's an illusion, you know, just as in certain altered states of consciousness, things maybe feel more unified, or we get that vibe, or we feel out of body. And 
we still only have to go on how we feel in the moment, what the perception is like. I guess how do we how do we know to put more faith in the perception or the feeling we get in altered states as opposed to everyday mundane nine to five consciousness? I guess that's just up to the individual and how they can view existence from their particular point of view. And no two people have that same precise outlook. I don't try to tell anybody to get into magic or <laughs> I'm not a big proselytizer at all. If you've read my Chicken Kabbalah and the Son of Chicken Kabbalah, it's just from the point of view of how Kabbalah is really meant to organize, to reorganize and to tune up your equipment so that your perception is more universally sensitive. Fair. And the idea that, oh, believe this or do that is really a downer compared to systems that are meant to, in a healthy way, mutate you to a higher level of consciousness so that you perceive a higher level of existence and being itself until ultimately you realize and not only understand that you're the perfect reflection of the singularity, you actually function as the reflection of the singularity. That, in a way, has been the message that magic has been trying to deliver in metaphors forever. The idea that King Solomon, who inherited this job, supposedly, according to the myth, according to the allegory. He inherited the job of building a functioning, miniature working model of the cosmos in the form of the temple, King Solomon's temple. Because Solomon was a cool guy and had a nice head on his shoulders. He knew he wasn't up to figuring out how the universe ran with the equipment that he had. He didn't have the meat brain to figure out how to build a miniature working model of the cosmos. So according to the allegory, he entered into the presence of God. So in other words, he elevated his consciousness, at least temporarily, to realize he was that perfect reflection of deity itself. And when in that elevated state, he saw how the universe ran. Okay, that's how he entered into the presence of God. And that gave him the grasp, I would say understanding, but actually it gave him the wisdom to see how using perfect geometry and things like that, he could make a physical reflection, an accurate physical reflection of this very unphysical, transcendent reality. And so that gave him power, of course, then to work with demons. Now, demons aren't 
it's not like they're morally bad. Demons are just the blind forces that actually sustain the heavy lifting in the universe. And when they're not under control, when they're not under direction, they naturally discharge their wild forces uh, along lines of least resistance. And so from our point of view, they're, you know, destructive and stuff. But when they're properly directed, just in the same way that heavy equipment, construction equipment, if you just got on a big giant earth mover or a caterpillar heavy machinery and just turned it on, put it in gear and jumped off and let it run through town, it would be a very destructive demonic force. But when you got a guy that knows how to run it in a hard hat, you know, you can just set the stage and build shit with it. <laughs> if I'm allowed to say that. Absolutely. Say anything. But that wise direction has to have its balanced force plugged right into the top. So that's the Solomonic formula. So a lot of people that misunderstand what magic is about, thinking that with little recipes, little poems, and little funny little tricks, that you can just immediately contact these demons and get them to go make the neighbor girl fall in love with you or something. Which could work to a degree in the same way that a child could semi-operate heavy machinery, but only for a short period of time before the whole thing turns south. I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> well, sure. And I love the Solomonic Temple story. It is an interesting allegory, and it might relate to why we see so many ancient megalithic sites oriented to parts of the cosmos. Maybe trying to tap into that reflection principle for some sort of universal insight or understanding as a group. But the idea of corralling these demonic forces or energies, putting them to task, as you say, I like the construction equipment analogy. And along those lines of thinking, if we were going to try to do that, harness these demons or give them tasks as to not let them run amok, is it better to go about that as individuals or as a society or a nation, like the building of those ancient sites? It's just interesting to speculate on the extra oomph that a society whose thinking is well aligned in these sorts of topics might yield, because even though most magic seems very personal and individualistic, in this context, these forces seem too big for individual assignments if they're used to doing the heavy lifting of the universe, wouldn't you say? Oh, I, you know, like the idea of the Prince of Persia, in a way, Dee and Kelly were trying to organize and control the 91 parts of the earth and the spiritual forces that run the show on 91 parts of the earth. Damn. But it's more along the lines of true magic isn't really done in a group or a community. I mean, you can be on board with a lot of things and push things in a general direction. Politics tries to do that. But from the point of view of actually working with 
these particular forces, doing things in a group makes the group only as strong as the weakest person in the group. And I don't know if how many groups you've been involved with or whatever, but I haven't, even in my experience with very, very wonderful, noble groups, it's hard for us to organize a picnic. <laughs> it's hard for us to start on time. It's hard for us to actually effectively work together, even on very small, mundane projects. So what we're really stuck with is working with ourselves. And the idea that if we really want something done to affect changes in the world around us, you don't attack the problem itself. You attack what is lacking or out of whack in yourself that is a reflection of this outer thing. Can I give an example? Please. Years ago, maybe 12 years ago by now, because of bizarre little circumstances, I was asked to exorcise a Catholic girl school, a high school. And it's kind of a long story. It was instigated partially because I'm a consecrated bishop that, well, it's a long story. I, <laughs> but anyway, I was hired by literally the archdiocese of the area. And I don't really do stuff like that generally. I don't hire myself out. I don't have a Yellow Pages ad or anything. And I'm, you know, of that it's all in your head. You just have no idea how big your head is philosophy. And so exorcism like that is just not me sticking my nose into usually somebody else's mental health problems. Mm -hmm. But in this particular case, the school was undergoing really a plague of misfortunes. Now, shit happens, and it doesn't have to be particularly demonic in nature just to have shit happen. But shit was happening so regularly, so intently, so in two of the cases, like within just weeks of each other, in deadly misfortunes, and then phenomena happening in the school and things like that. Now, I don't want to stick my nose into shit happening in a Catholic girls' school, but for some reason it was laid at my door, okay? Mm -hmm. And it was almost like, well, this is something I need to deal with. Obviously, because this has been so curiously laid at my feet to deal with, 
it must be my problem too. Mm. So in other words, I recognize this challenge as something that I probably should do because for some reason or another, at this time and at this place, I was capable of taking care of it. But I had no illusions that it wasn't because I had to work on something in myself in order to make this work. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So, I looked at all of these misfortunes as if they were a collection of smaller shit happens. So, in other words, I'm going to treat these as, first of all, maybe about 60 very small demons. But together, they make one big demon or one big spirit. So I'm going to gather them all together and turn them into one spirit, and I will exorcise that spirit. So before I drove up to the school, I uh, did a Goeshiki vocation to evoke that spirit. Prior to that, I used a pendulum to get the spirit's name. I drew up the appropriate sigils. I did a full-blown Goeshiki evocation as if it was the spirit of the Goetia. I did it right here in my office. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the spirit appears as they appear to me. When I called it forth for the evocation part, I did it so loudly that a dove that had built a little nest here right outside my office window, it scared the hell out of the dove, and the dove flew away, and I could hear the fluttering of the wings just as I was calling the spirit. And the fluttering of the wings triggered something in my mind, and the spirit appeared in the triangle as a large and oversized Norwegian magpie. Hmm. And I don't think of stuff like this, okay? It, <laughs> it just popped in. Why a Norwegian magpie and everything else? But anyway, I welcomed the spirit into the triangle, and I assured myself that's who it was. And I said, okay, uh, stay right there in the triangle, and I'm going to call you up again in a couple hours. And so I wrapped the circle around me. My circle was a thin silk cord. I wrapped it around me and put my clothes on over the belt of the circle. So in other words, I stayed in the circle. I wrapped up the triangle and all the other goodies, and I put it in my little briefcase along with the holy water and wands. (laughs) Right, as you do. And stuff. Yeah, my traveling kit. And drove up. I spoke for about 10 minutes with the Mother Superior. And as I was talking to her, the phone rang. The call was from the mother of the little nun who had died in front of her class just a couple days earlier and freaked the kids out. And The call was to say that 
her husband, the little dead nun's father, had just died. Like heartbroken, you know. Yeah. But it's just more shit happening. <laughs> but anyway, she hung up and, <laughs> and says, well, when can you start, you know? And the rest is a long story that I was there all night. I got to stay in the school all night. I banished and cleansed each room and sealed each room off and moved everything into the vice principal's office. So in other words, I just like swept everything into one spot. And I figured the vice principal's office, because every vice principal I've ever known was the devil himself. <laughs> right. Seems appropriate. Yeah. So it was about six hours. And doing multiple back-to-back -back banishings and little ceremonies in every one of those classrooms, every one of the administrative rooms, you get a little crazy. You get to be a wild-eyed magician, actually, after about six hours. And it's really easy to visualize and hallucinate and all of that stuff. But anyway, I reset up the triangle, reset up my circle, and called up the spirit again, the magpie. And it's kind of funny. I hope I'm not taking too much time here. No, it's all good. Okay. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to wander around a Catholic girl's school, a hundred-year-old Catholic girl's school, in the middle of the night by yourself. No. It's creepy, okay? There are statues of saints with arrows in them. It's creepy, okay? There's all sorts of tortured Christs pictured all over the place. There's, you know, statues of Mary and saints. So by the time I saw that magpie, that magical magpie, I was almost happy to see him because at least he's a little magical, <laughs> a little magical character that wasn't one of these grotesque icons. So instead of just banishing him with a, you know, formulaic little thing that you can do in Enochian, I said, when he appeared, I said, why are you tormenting these people? I didn't have to say that, and I probably shouldn't have said it. I should have just got to work and Banished it. Yeah. But I wanted to chat. <laughs> okay. I get that. And when you talk to a spirit, you receive the spirit's answer on the same wavelength that your question is delivered with. So, in other words, by the time you're through asking the question, you've received the complete answer. Does that make sense? That's, hmm. that's how you communicate. Somewhat instantaneous. It is instantaneous. And I said, why are you tormenting these people? And the answer immediately was, came back in language that I do not usually talk in myself. So it came as a surprise. It said, is it a sin 
for the carrion crow to peck the eyes of a dangling knight. <laughs> okay. Okay, and, uh, <laughs> and I sort of, and it threw me off guard because I immediately saw the allusion to, you know, the Knights of the Holy Grail questing for the Holy Grail and, you know, failing and being hung and the crows pecking their eyes. That's all in the Grail mysteries, you know. And then I thought, okay, it's absolutely true. This guy is busting me. Who do I think I am? You know, gallivanting up the freeway, coming to the rescue of the nuns and the little girls. Who the hell do I think I am to stick my nose into all of this other karma? Mm. It's none of my business. Who do I think I am? And I started to have these incredible doubts and self-incrimination and a real, real imbalanced sense of, well, self-incrimination, I guess is the best word. And as I was busting myself and thinking, I'm just going to pack this up and go home. The spirit started to, or the crow, <laughs> the magpie started to flap its wings and leave the triangle. Hmm. And then I realized, okay, here it is. This is what needs to change in me. And I shouted it back into the triangle. Uh, screw myself incrimination. I was given this job for some kind of reason. I'm going to do it. You know, screw you back into the triangle. But what I was doing was wrestling with myself. Can you see how all of this was me wrestling with myself to affect a mutation in myself, to fix an imbalance in myself, to open up a path of realization that had until then been blocked. And it's me coming to that place that was the exorcism. Hmm. I couldn't have done it with the me that hadn't had that nervous breakdown, in other words. The me after the nervous breakdown was a different person, a magician who could exercise that spirit. So I finished off the banishing. I did the three-part curse. I packed up its sigil from the triangle. I took it into the Mother Superior's private bathroom in her office. I set it on fire and flushed it down the toilet. <laughs> right on. Well, I do like that anecdote. It's definitely insightful. I can see why that provides a good example. And, of course, the catalyst for you being here today is your latest book, Allow Me to Introduce, which is a nice collection of introductions you've written for others. And I like it because it is a crash course in a lot of different topics. And as I was reading the book, it became obvious how little I know about all these vast systems with their own languages, usually this 
layered alphanumeric code. And as you say, the names of these entities and spirits can be very important to dig out of grimoires. And that instantaneous response element to the story you just told is really fascinating. Those are kind of the mechanisms and clues I like to look at to try to get a handle on what these things are. And I'm curious if there's other mechanisms of contact that you've experienced that have brought you to those conclusions that you have about what spirits are, that it is all in your head. Are there other strange little mechanisms of how these things work that give you clues as to what really is under the hood? Yeah, and all of them, in a sense, have all more or less piled on to you know, give me the equivalent of this, this magical world view. So the people will ask, well, doing all these magic rituals and stuff, what happens? Have you ever made anything happen with all of your things? Doing Enochian magic with these repeating fractals of angelic hierarchy of spirits or these demon evocations with Solomonic magic or you're working with Kabbalistic angels and stuff. What have you done to make stuff happen? And all I can say is that I can't point to any success story except me. (laughs) Everything has been put together just to mutate me into who I am. And to tell you the truth, I'm pretty happy with who I am. But it's not like there's a couple things that you could point to that would be an example of phenomena or a quid pro quo for a magic thing. But mostly the magic is all done for the benefit of the magician's own alchemical transformation. And anything over and above that is just sort of an interesting anecdote that may or may not have any relevance to anybody else's magic. Fair. Yeah. Well, let me switch gears a bit and ask you about some of the content from these intros in this latest book, because I am also interested in the relationship between magic, enlightenment, and sexuality. And you touch on that in this intro to Opus Magio Cabalisticum and Theoriso Philicum. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's my best stab at it. But it's pretty good, yeah. <laughs> so this author, Von Welling, he, as you say, layered his language as to conceal his ideas from the profane while revealing them to the initiated. And quote, You say, these, in my opinion, include mystical secrets of the human body, and even more dangerously, the powers and potentialities of human sexuality. Well, that's quite provocative. Provocative, man. What are you alluding to when you say secrets of the human body? Can you talk to us about that a bit? Sure. You know, von Welling was an alchemist, a rather late alchemist, I think. The book that I was asked to introduce was written like in 1717, and it was in German. He was an alchemist, 
And, you know, alchemists are supposedly early chemists that were trying to make gold from lead. They were trying to transmute gold to lead. Right. And I'm not saying that alchemists, or at least certain alchemists, weren't actually trying to do that on a physical level. And they use these properties of salt, sulfur, and mercury, and they take what is called the prima matter. The first matter, they take something that's really gross and shitty and work on it through various processes. And the processes themselves became actually the protocol of modern chemistry in order to extract the spirit or the essence, the spiritual essence from this material. In other words, they were taking a human and turning it into God, which is precisely what we've been talking about as far as consciousness, human consciousness, to awakening to God consciousness or the singularity. But they were doing it in Europe at a time when the Catholic Church would give you the ultimate hot foot for doing anything that was just not orthodox Christianity as they saw it. And so a lot of the alchemical material had to be written in such a way as not to get them in trouble with the church, but at the same time, at least try to communicate the results of their practices and their operations with other people that knew the same alchemical secret language. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And so in the East, in China and Tibet and India, for thousands of years, they've drawn the parallels of the greater cosmos and the human body itself as a physical reflection of the processes and the characteristics of the greater cosmos itself. So the mind of man, if it was perfected, would be the reflection of the mind of God. And the creative processes within the human body would be the reflection of the creative processes that light the stars and are responsible for all of the natural forces in the universe. So, in other words, human creation is a reflection of divine creation. So, the alchemists, when their anal retentive zeal actually itemized or categorized the different forces within the human body with these universal forces. And just like the tantrics of Tibet and India, they realized that human sexuality was reflective of cosmic forces of creation. And that the human body, made up of different chemicals, made up of salt and sulfur and mercury. And von Velling was a big guy on salt. Oh, my God, the first 50 pages of the book, you're so tired of hearing about salt. But the idea 
what he was trying to get across, and he did a pretty good job because it's pretty recognizable to modern philosophers, what he was talking about. And when I said it was dangerous that he was talking about human sexuality, I didn't mean it was dangerous for us to read it or dangerous for us to practice it. It was dangerous for him because even in the 1700s, he could have gotten himself in major trouble if he would have actually been talking about a person's semen or a woman's eggs or the menstrual fluids or the mental processes, the, the visualization processes that could be going on in a person's head as they're creating these fluids. And in the same way that a human child, the body of a human child, is created by the union of the sperm and the egg. And a human child is such a profound instrument to hatch from this process, this process that your mom and dad and my mom and dad did, uh, and everybody in the world who's here, is the result of this natural alchemical process, that could be seen as a metaphor for greater creative activity. In other words, the, a magician could create anything using the same basic ingredients, same basic visualizations, using that metaphor for any form of creation thing. And so anything that's created, in a way like a poem or a play or a movie or a musical composition, in a sense, was born using this same process. And it's much bigger than sex, okay? Sex is just a metaphor for this. But even in those days, nobody would have understood that before they lit the match on your execution. So that's what I meant by it was dangerous. And so this book, are you familiar with the story of Faustus, of Dr. Faustus? Uh, the Faustian Pact? Yes. Yes, of course, yes. Okay, in Goethe's version of Faustus, in the beginning part of the play or the book, Faustus is all bummed out that he's a professor and he's got all of the knowledge in the world. He knows all of this stuff and he's studied it for years and he's not any wiser than he was when he was just a kid. And so he picks up a book in the story, and he opens the book, and he starts looking at it, and he's describing these diagrams, and he's waxing so, so poetic about this. If I can find it real fast, I'll even give you a shot of it. He said, I've studied now philosophy and jurisprudence, medicine, and even, alas, theology. And through and through with ardor keen, here now I stand, poor fool, and see I'm just as wise as formerly. And then he picks up this book and he goes, ah, what rapture at once is flowing through all my senses at the sight of this. I feel a youthful life 
its holy bliss through nerve and vein run on new glowing. Was it a god who wrote these signs that still my inner tumult, that fill my wretched heart with ecstasy, unveiling with mysterious potency the powers of nature round and about me? Well, the book that he was looking at was Von Velling's book. Ah. That was very, very popular among the alchemists of that day. And it became the knowledge lecture book for a group of German hermetic occultists and Freemasons called the Gold und Rosenkreuzen. And I'm probably saying that wrong. And the Gold und Rosenkreuzen were the inspiration to guys in England who could read German who became the Society Rosicruziana in Anglica, which became the Golden Dawn. Bam. So this book not only inspired Goethe, this book inspired and literally two generations created the Golden Dawn. And, of course, if you're familiar with the Golden Dawn mythos, they said it was a German adept, Frau Springle, that gave Englishmen authority to start the Golden Dawn. Well, we've since found out that there probably wasn't a real Frau Springle, but this book was Frau Springle. So a person named Patricia Baker, who liked my book, My Life with the Spirits, and she ran a was the head of a film company, and they wanted to do, or at least option my book, My Life of the Spirits, for a movie. And she got married, and she and her husband went to Europe to buy antiques for their home in West Massachusetts. And while they were antique shopping, they found a 1742, I believe, edition of this book in German. And they just bought it as an antique. And when she got back, she called me up and said, say, I got this book. It looks very occult and stuff. Have you ever heard of it? And yes, I had heard of it. Okay. <laughs> I had really heard of it. But it's never been translated into English. And I said, I've heard about it. It's the most mysterious and cool book. There wouldn't have been a Golden Dawn without it and all of this stuff. And she says, well, I know the head of the German department over at Smith College here. If I can get him to translate it, do you think your friends at Weiser would publish it? And I said, yeah, I, <laughs> <laughs> I think they would. And so that's what happened. So that's how that book came into being. Beautiful, beautiful. All comes full circle. And I do think like some of that stuff is really interesting. The idea of extracting the spiritual essence out of sexual material or just material in general. And it kind of makes me think about how in today's world, it seems like the war on drugs is crafted as a war on consciousness and something to keep us in this mundane wavelength of life that can be easily controlled and not realize our true power. You could almost make an analogy that our sex repressed culture, both now and then, could have been for similar reasons that people who 
put forth those ideas like the church, they know that there's value in potentially cracking that code of creation and maybe that that's really the goal here. They don't care if we bang. They really don't care, but they care if we unlock deeper levels of reality, of consciousness, because that's going to upset their apple cart of control. Would you say that's, uh, I don't know, do you agree with any of that? I think that was excellent. That was well said. And yes, absolutely. Yes, sex is fine to put you to sleep, but please don't use it to wake up. (laughs) I like it. I like it. And so let me get really weird with you here for a second. And I know it's all in our head, but this is more fun at first minute if we pretend that it's not and that these are separate things. But we talk a lot about aliens as well as spirits on this show. Surprise, surprise, right? But if we think about them as separate or autonomous beings, there is a long history of encounters with both of these things that can be quite sexual. And it makes me wonder if these other beings that we're interacting with, whether it's incubus, succubus, or sexual experimentations on some spacecraft, it almost seems like, I don't know, do these beings know this about human sexuality? Are they trying to crack the code of creation in a similar way just by tinkering around with individuals? Oh, or they, they just have a, a, a higher understanding of it, and it's, it's no big thing to them. Right. People take those experiences quite personal, and I guess if it's all in your head, they should. But at the same time, it seems like the agenda isn't just to fondle your junk. It's to really get into the core of like what that creation process is like. And if there's something that's not human, and a human can do it, they would want to tinker under the hood of a human to figure it out. Right. Or the same way that if we, say, go to Europa, you know, the moon of Jupiter, and get under the ice and see a bunch of cephalopods down there playing poker or something, (laughs) we would probably be incredibly curious as to the basic DNA makeup. What makes them tick and what makes them thinking that every cell in our body in, in some way is also connected to the mechanics of our consciousness, not just the mechanics of why we got a long nose or bad teeth. Every cell in our body has the code that, with a proper analysis, could tell us everything about our particular stage of consciousness. If we would do something like that to a cephalopod on Europa, can you imagine what they would do if they, you know, landed in Cleveland? (laughs) Wow. Well, hey, this has been a lot of fun. You know a lot about a lot. I wanted to try to make good use of our time, and I know you've heard it all, so I figured, screw it. We'll just jump right into the deep end of the pool and uh, swim around for a bit. So... Thanks for taking the time and for all the great books and great music that you've cast out into the world. Do remind people where they can find your work or follow up for more or any other projects you got going on, all that good stuff. Okay, well, my regular thing is my Facebook page. So I got a Facebook fan page and a Facebook friend page, and that's just Lawn Milo Duquette. But as far as all my books and cards and CDs and things like that, you can go to Amazon, 
Amazon Music for my music, Amazon Books for my books. And my music is also on Spotify and CD Baby and Pandora and just wherever you buy music. My CDs and downloads are available. But mostly Amazon will give you everything. Very cool. Well, thanks again. Had a great time. I've certainly learned a lot and benefited from a lot of these ideas, taking control of one's life and stumbling into what feels like my place in the world. And I've got you in part to thank for that. So much appreciated and take care out there. Okay. Thanks for having me on. And hopefully in a year or so, there'll be another book for us to talk about. <laughs> I'm sure there will be. Cheers. Until then. Okay, Greg. Bye-bye. Eureka, dear people, the long-awaited return of Lone Milo Duquette, magic master extraordinaire. And I know there are a lot of mixed feelings out there about magic and magic-oriented fraternities, and nobody's telling you to join or not join anything, not even lawn. I've never been a group man myself, contrary to what some of the trolls out there like to say. But if I have the opportunity to pry into a person who has been tackling this sort of stuff their whole life, I'm going to do it. I've always enjoyed Lon's writing, but I find that it's all in your head answer to be a bit hard to wrestle with because it's just so all-encompassing and overarching that it creates a umbrella in which all answers just kind of lead back to that. But when I think about ritual and the accounts that I've heard of certain manifestations, it is curious that they tend to appear differently to different people, and there is this sort of spectral quality to things. Is it possible that these are projected aspects of the deeper individual, not really a separate or subjective summoning of a particular spirit? I don't know. I try not to make very many conclusions about phenomenon that I haven't experienced, because people are generally quick to dismiss the limited range of high strangeness I have experienced. And it's like, if you haven't gone there firsthand, you probably should stop trying to weigh in on it too much with uneducated conclusions. But just based on the reports that I have read, and all their variants, as well as the beans being less than solid in a lot of cases, and based on the insights of a career magician, maybe there's something to it. It's clearly a highly debated topic, even among the experts, and I'm definitely more attracted to the idea that these entities are separate, but I don't want to close the door on the wider range of explanations either. I was also happy to just have an opportunity to get Lon back on, since I know a lot more about the nuances of Western occultism than I did on our first go-around. I particularly wanted to talk more about the sexual aspects, or really the sexual interests of these beings, and the provocative term angel sperm that I'd heard him mention. And of course, a lot of that didn't get unpacked until the second hour, because the first was a little bit anecdote-heavy, again, just the nature of a conversation, and another reason why a Plus membership is so much better than only hearing the free show. Sometimes we've barely had liftoff 45 minutes in. Not really a bad thing, but it's just a reality. While we're on the subject, the topics that did comprise the second half would be why demons and aliens seem so interested in our sexuality, 
the infinite applications of cracking human sexuality and life creation, angel sperm, money magic, magicians in the elite, and finally, Lon's thoughts on the death process. So, insightful stuff. I thought it was a good time. I got to ask what I wanted to ask, and Lon is an insightful guy. And despite what some of you might think about magic practitioners in general, I know we have a big audience of many varied opinions, so I know there's going to be some criticism, but I would assume that you're still interested in hearing the thoughts of someone who practices magic at Lon's level. Nobody was ever well served by forming strong opinions while also being underinformed. Which, speaking of underinformed and strong opinions, I guess that brings me to the big scary virus out there. Clearly, you guys know I record THC interviews in advance, sometimes pretty far in advance, actually. I have some life commitments and a birthday in the second half of March, so I recorded four interviews in the first couple of weeks, pretty much all before coronavirus coverage hit the full-on panic button, so you probably won't hear about it, at least in the interviews that I do for a while. If you want to get a good idea of what conspiracy researchers are thinking about this particular story, I recommend John Rappaport, who we've talked to a few times in the past. His website is nomorefakenews.com, using that fake news term before it was cool. And David Icke's website actually just posted a pretty good summary of several various threads that are worth considering when looking at this virus and where it came from. Personally, I would guess that a lot of us are sick of hearing about this thing. There's so much hype and panic and over-preparation that I'm just fatigued. I was in LA over the weekend because I was invited to be on an episode of the YouTube show Middle Ground. So a few buddies of mine went with me up there to have a good weekend built around this filming. And at breakfast yesterday, the owner was getting wasted at the bar. And on the way out, he essentially thanked us for our bravery and patronage and bought us some shots. So whiskey before 10 a.m. was a thing yesterday. But what can I say? I'm a bit of a yes man these days. But he was also saying, well, this is probably going to destroy my business. And it's been a good ride. And just a lot of the whole end is nigh mindset stuff. A little bit over the top, but I also don't own a huge restaurant on a big corner lot in one of the most expensive cities in the country. And I think the governor of California is on TV as we speak right now asking restaurants and bars to close for a while. And I do worry much more about the downstream effect on people and businesses that just can't weather a bad month or two, more than I worry about a virus. We've done many shows about maintaining a healthy system, many guests who have had great advice with proven results, and I think you're better prepared to handle this than you might realize. And we've also talked about the very well-established link between stress levels and the immune system. That's something you can control. Woo-saw, woo-saw, serenity now. Don't let your friends and family get so worked up that they crash their own systems. Healthy body, healthy mind. And magic doesn't hurt either, I'm sure. But when this is over, I do hope that people take away a few lessons regarding lifestyle, diet, self-sufficiency, and how quickly the systems outside of your control that you might take for granted can fail. 
I also think whether this virus is real or not, organic or engineered, 5G and pollution related, or some sort of bioweapon, the amount of panic we've seen, the amount of control that the public has been willing to surrender, it's a strong indication to me that they've just discovered truly how effective this tool is. Not that they didn't have a pretty good idea, but just look around. They can do anything with it. Restrict travel, close businesses, and even crash economies. Even though our economy has been a powder keg for a long time, essentially built to fail ever since the infamous Jekyll Island meeting, it's still made for a very convenient scapegoat this week. And nobody talks about Epstein anymore. But, you know, I just wanted to mention it and let people know that the next three or four THCs are probably not going to be about this virus panic unless I record one this week and inject it into the lineup. And I don't really have plans to do that. And I hope people are actually relieved to hear this. I hope we all want to hear about topics that are unrelated to this thing because it's just too damn much. And if you haven't signed up for THC+, if you're just going to be sitting around, it might be a good time to do so. Lots of extra hours you haven't heard. Help me help you and all that. <laughs> but that is today's show. Nice to get back into practical magic. It has been a while. And with that, I'm getting out of here. Your move, vast manifestations of the consciousness container, personal projections, and all the things inside the one big head. Your fucking 